Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the FISA blog and author of the recently released Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is the farm podcast dot store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store also please consider signing up for the farm's patreon you get two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours bonus material with exclusive guests and content okay guys I am very excited about today's guest. He holds a PhD in sociology from Stanford, specializing in political sociology. Professionally, he was a former senior civilian intelligence analyst with the Department of the Army with expertise in the former Soviet Union, the former Yugoslavia and organized crime. In recent years, he has produced some incredibly scholarly work on the rise of the Christian right for academia. There you can find much of a three-part trilogy he's working on called The Christian Right's Fourth Generation Warfare in America. He has also contributed to Political Research Associates and Salon, among others, and is the founder of the blog CJ's Street Report. Folks, I give you guys the great James. James, I already forgot your last name. <laughs> Uh, Scaminacci. Scaminacci. Okay. That's, that's too funny. Well, like I said, it's a bit of a tradition on the farm that I always have trouble with the last names of the kids here. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, but thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. Yeah. No, All right. Uh, yeah. All right. Today's show is going to be awesome. We are going to cover a lot of topics that you guys have been hearing about over the past year or so, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to tie some threads together. James is the premier authority on fourth generation warfare active today, so that's going to provide us with the foundation for today's show. And through that prism, we are going to look at a host of topics ranging from the Ron Paul movement to Morningstar Ministries, the use of conspiracy theory as political warfare, and inevitably QAnon. That's a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to dig right in. All right, James, so to start off with, um, can you break down a little bit of your background for us? I mean, I know a lot sure. of people find this intriguing, so um, yeah. why so don't you go over that? I was, I was a senior military intelligence analyst, and I was, I was stationed overseas for, um, well, with the government probably about 15 years, something like that. So I was, I was stationed, I worked in the European Command, and I was at the Joint Analysis Center. I was a senior military intelligence analyst. And I, I, I was responsible first, I think, for the Soviet Union. And, and then I picked up the, the former Yugoslavia. And unlike a lot of analysts, I actually deployed downrange into Bosnia-Herzegovina for four years. And not, not consecutive four years, but over a period of time, it was four years. I covered the Bosnian War from the beginning in 1992. I was part of the JTF that was in Italy covering the war. Um, and then I covered it from the Jack. Then I went down range. I, I led a small team um, uh, working on implementation issues that had been authorized by President Clinton. And the Bosnian War is, is a quintessential fourth generation warfare um, event. And, and, and for this entire talk, um, I, want, I would like your, 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 your listeners to keep this basic model in mind. It's a very simple model. 
Uh, and I didn't think it up. Steve Bannon's talked about it. Breitbart's talked about it. Other people have talked about it. And the basic model is this. You wage a culture war in order to gain uh, political power. Okay? So you wage a cultural war to gain political power. And that runs through everything in this whole talk. And if you think about the Bosnian war, just very simply, is the Bosnian Serbs, actually the Serb government under Milosevic, they went to delegitimizing the existence of the entire country of Bosnia-Herzegovina, that it never really existed, was never really a country. They delegitimized the existence of Muslims. They were actually really Serbs, and they should just come back to being Serbs. Um, Milosevic weaponized science and religion for political war. Uh, you know, to justify the, the territorial expansion of Serbia, he used religion and science. Uh, he used TV, radio, print, media, and, and anything else he could get his hand on um, to generate these big lies. And they all use the big lie technique like Trump does now. So it's the basic model you have to keep in mind looking at the, at the right wing. They're going to rage, wage cultural war in order to wage political war. Okay. And this is like where your interest in fourth generation warfare began, or did you recognize what you were seeing in, um, you know, Bosnia as no, such at the time? I didn't recognize fourth generation warfare at the time um, because the Bosnian war started in 92. The first fourth generation warfare article was actually published in, in like 1989. And yeah, I wasn't paying attention. I, I was so deep into my work. I wasn't paying attention, but um Whereas a lot of intelligence analysts bought into um, the Serb propaganda um, that this was ancient ethnic hatreds that explained this outbreak of the war. I had been arguing with my colleagues since before the war started back in like 89, 90, that this was just territorial expansion. Milosevic was just using the, this excuse to um, foment war. And so I didn't buy into it. And I was constantly battling against it. It's only much later on that you know, I ran into the fourth generation warfare writings and, and, and got more in depth than John Boyd. But I had been actively involved in, in, in combating this fourth generation warfare. Yeah, it's very interesting, especially with the whole uh, climate there, because they kind of brought up an interesting point. I do remember there was a lot of dispute in U.S. intelligence over which side exactly we should be supporting there. It was um, it was very muddy waters, as I gathered. Yeah, and, and, and the thing of it is, if, if you think about warfare, you know, people think about uh, bombs on the ground, steel on target, is if you get into your opponent's mind, into their mindset, you begin changing a lot of things. If, for example, if you think that ancient ethnic hatreds starts the war and that explains it, it means you really can't intervene and do anything, right? What's the point? They're, they're going to just keep on fighting. And so the Serbs were able to move, you know, sometimes Western public opinion, Western decision makers. I mean, Clinton bought into it. He read a book by um, Kaplan you know, and Kaplan was in this ancient ethnic hatreds thing. And so, you know, Clinton thought he couldn't do anything for a couple of years until it finally dawned on him and the reality was on the ground that you know, we got to intervene. This is this is not just ethnic hatred. hatred. After Srebrenica, we, we, we were deeply involved in this. 
All right, so uh, we did an earlier episode in Fourth Generation Warfare with uh, my research partner, Keith Allen Dennis and John Brisson back in the spring. So my readers are a little familiar with the concept of 4G war, but I was hoping you could give us the origins and general overview of this concept. Right. So the origin, the originator of it, I mean, if you really technically, technically the, the originator is John Boyd, okay, in, 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 in his discussion of the OODA loop you know, the observation, orientation, decision, action. If you go through John Boyd's work, you can see the elements of it. But the guy who puts it together and, and, and introduces the concept is William S. Uh, Lind from, he was, at, he was a director of cultural conservatism at the Free Congress Foundation. And he was, that, that foundation was like the leading think tank for strategy for the Christian life, okay? And so he published an article in 1989 in the U.S. Marine Corps Gazette. And interestingly enough, it's more about generations of warfare and weapons that can be used. He doesn't even use the word legitimacy, for example. And he, basically, what my analysis is, is that he laid down the operational principles for the, the Patriot militia that would emerge like two, three years later. All right, but the elements of fourth generation warfare that he laid out in the, the 1989 and then in the 1994 article in the U.S. Marine Corps Gazette is that it is a conflict between a state actor, read the federal government, and a non-state actor based on ideas, but that could be religion, it could be um, uh, ideology, or it could be the purity of one's race, which is what he said in the 1994 article. And the contest is over the legitimacy of the central government or the federal government. And so the object of this war in, in terms of waging a cultural war is to have people transfer their allegiance and loyalty from the central government or the federal government to the non-state actor. That is it in a nutshell. And the main weapons are psychological warfare, the manipulation of the news, manipulation of images, but also sporadically terrorism or even sporadically guerrilla war. That's not excluded, okay? There's a kinetic element to it, but mostly it's a non-kinetic element. And where it's all gonna end up is in a racial civil war, which is ethnic cleansing and genocide. Oh my goodness! Yes, that's um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, let's see here. So, how have groups like the Heritage Foundation and the Council of National Policies been using fourth-generation warfare um, to bring us to this current state of affairs? Okay, so the Council for National Policy is a opaque, if not, it's a it's secret, but you know, things leak out of it. But basically it's a secret organization that brings together the political operators, um, strategists and more, uh, communications companies and fundraising, fundraising people, millionaires and billionaires, okay? The Koch brothers, for example, have a seat in the Council for National Policy. Um, Edwin Meese from the Council for National Policy goes to the secret conclaves of the, the, that the Kochs convene like what, twice a year to um, raise money. And then the Koch money goes through Donors Trust, 
and donors trust is uh, gives money to basically um, it has a litmus test. You basically have to be an evangelical Christian-like organization to get the money. So what's the what, what do they do? The CNP gets together with big money people, and they strategize and they go, what culture war issue can we can we can we wage next year? or in the next six months, right? And so you look, they have, they go after abortion, they go after gay rights, uh, immigration, education, welfare. You know, they they sit there and strategize and then they come up with a, an information warfare plan, fund it, get the operators to do it, find the states, and then they, and they wage the campaign. The Heritage Foundation is, um, these, I put in quotation marks, the secular, uh, face of the Christian right in these in these in these debates. I mean, it was started by Paul Weirich, who basically was an architect of the Christian right. So it it has a secular face, but it's serving a a, a theological dominionist um, movement. Now, out of curiosity, do you see ties to this and kind of some of the um, the earlier efforts by groups like the American Security Council? I mean, they had the, what was it, the Institute for American Strategy, for instance, which was kind of um, almost like a political psychological warfare bureau for them, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, they did have a fair amount of the donors like Richard Mellon Scafe, who would later become such a big you know, figure in the new no. right. I saw them in DC in the early 90s. Yeah, yes, see. Like the late 80s and very early 90s, okay? They were they were hanging around, okay? But they didn't actually interact all that much with with Wyrick. They just didn't. I, I didn't see it. Um, they they intersected every once in a while, but they they were off doing their own thing primarily that, that was my observation of the group i could be wrong I'm, I'm just saying what i saw um because i was working in dc at the time and, and, and what i saw is that they sporadically came around what do you think like their main interest was, was this is just really interesting to me to kind of get a first-hand account of them yeah i'm not an expert on them i, I think their main interest was anti-communism okay and that was their sole focus was anti-communism Whereas the Christian right actually had a much broader focus other than anti-communism. You know, for example, Weirich was interested in the Strategic Defense Initiative, right? He had a whole legislative thing, you know, going on on domestic issues, right? So he had a much broader focus than just just militarily anti-communism. It's interesting, and it kind of also illustrates maybe why, you know, a lot of the groups like Heritage and um, Towns for National Policy uh, policy were able to stick around after the Cold War came to a close, whereas, well, I guess the ASC is still maybe hovering around in some incarnation now, but um, it's a shadow of uh, what it once was. That's yeah, and, and the thing of it is, is that Heritage Foundation, what, what keeps them going is, of course, they're all for tax cuts, right? And, and, and reducing regulations. And so, you, you know, they get donations from corporations because they're, they're basically the lobbying arm of corporations, but where corporations don't really have to, uh, you know, it's a third party doing the lobbying for them. 
Yeah, that was um, it was certainly the sense I got about the ASC and its heyday too for a lot of the defense industry. But um, yeah, it is kind of interesting to see how so much of what these groups push, I mean, ultimately does go back to mm -hmm. um, you know, what's going to enhance the bottom line of their donors. <laughs> um, all right, so you've written about something you call the Camp of the Saints worldview and its importance. Um, you probably should first explain what the Camp of the Saints is. A uh, very uh, interesting novel, to put it mildly, but I don't know how many of my listeners are familiar with it. But um, what is the book and what uh, do you mean by the whole Camp of the Saints worldview? Okay, so Camp of the Saints is a novel, all right? And it's, it's sort of like, a, a, I guess, a metaphor because it basically depicts a flotilla of ships coming from India with millions of, of Indians on it. It was like what the last hope armada or something like something, that. Something, you know, but he, he's going to condense within a period of a month or two, um, a demographic process, political process that would take decades, right? But he's going to condense it down to a, a couple of months. And so the novel's called Camp of the Saints. And it basically depicts this armada of Indians on their way to France, because he's a French writer. And his main, it's a racist novel, don't get me wrong, but his main complaint is directed not at the Indians, but at the French political elite, the French economic elite, the French intellectuals, the French religious elite, of they don't have the the moral strength, the moral courage to turn back this armada. The armada lands, they slaughter the French, and you know France basically disappears. They've, it also happens in, in New York and the United States. So it's a novel that if you don't stop the invasion of the third world, we're gonna be destroyed physically and culturally. That's, that's basically the, 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 the meaning of the, of the novel. When I said Camp of the Saints worldview, I said it because one, this novel was very influential. It was, it was published in the United States several times, and it was published by Social Contract Press, which was- John It originated in the 70s, right? Yeah, it was in the 1970s, and it was published in 1973 is in, in France, 75 in the US, and um, uh, what's her name, Cordelia Scaife, She's giving money to John Tanton and she is paying for the publication of this thing over time. And so it's the bedrock book of the, the nativist anti-immigration movement in the United States. Tanton's connected to the Christian right. So it spreads into the Christian right. He's connected to, to the Free Congress Foundation because they have a sh television show on national empowerment television where they're spewing out this anti-immigrant rhetoric into the Christian right. It spreads to the, it spreads to the uh, conservative citizens people, you know, the, the, the white supremacists down in the South. It spreads all over. Everybody in the, on the right wing knows what this novel is. And so because it's so widespread, I wanted us to, to capture what this camp of the saints worldview was that appeals to the Christian right, the patriot militias, the white nationalists, white supremacists, and the neo-Nazis. And I just wanted to formulate that they all have a common view, a common worldview, even though they're segmented, segmented. Okay. So it, this, 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 this novel 
and what made it influential is not just in the United States, but it influenced the great replacement that's done by Renaud Camus. It influences the identitarian movement. It influences Steve Bannon, who introduces it again into more mainstream conservatism in 2016 and 2015, okay? So it was a subterranean novel. He, he injects the whole thing into the Trump campaign. It goes into the alt-right. It goes into the conservative movement. It goes into the counter-jihad movement. So it's a very influential novel and it has a very specific fourth generation warfare uh, type focus. Yeah, I mean, it is a very fascinating work. And you um, you said one of the Scafies, uh, that, would that be a relation to Richard Mellon Scafie was help, uh, who helped uh, spread it? Cordelia Scafe. She's, okay. um, she's in the Scafe family. I, I don't okay. remember what, what her exact, but she's the one that funds, funds it. Okay, that's interesting. I did not know that they had the connection to it. But that's yeah. not surprising given how much this other stuff that family is funded. So, uh. all right, so let's get into conspiracy theories. Okay. In a sense, they're very, they've very much been weaponized in recent years, at least more so than they already were. But the 90s, especially as the Cold War came to a close, it seems like the proverbial the crossing of the Rubicon occurred in terms of conspiracy theory. What's your take on all of this? Well, con conspiracy theories are weaponized. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, I wrote, a, I wrote a note here is go back to the basic model. I said you wage a cultural war in order to have political power or even a wage of political war, right? And a conspiracy theory is just another way, another vehicle, another weapon in a cultural war. And what it's basically saying in a fourth generation warfare way is that the elites for what, you know, the elites are illegitimate because they are doing immoral things. And they either doing immoral things because they're not defending the country or they're doing immoral things. Let's say, we'll, I know we're going to get into QAnon later on. You know, they're this satanic cult, you know, cult, um, you know, uh, eating babies, right? You know, you get into crazy stuff. But you, if you look at it, <coughs> it's, it's a form of fourth generation warfare. It's a weaponization of stories or narratives, Okay. They're always intended to delegitimize the target of the conspiracy theory. They provide moral courage to the believer, right? They give moral strength to the believer. You get the idea that you have inside knowledge that nobody else has, right? And if you think about it, it does, it also offers you an identity. You know, for example, if you go back to the earliest conspiracy theory in my lifetime. Let's say you take the, the John Birch Society and you take the, the conspiracy theory that Eisenhower, President Eisenhower is actually a communist agent, right? That's an insane belief. But if you believe it, that marks you as a member of the John Birch Society and it differentiates you from every other conservative, all right? So it gives you an identity. And what these conspiracy theories do is, one, they appeal to your, every, your confirmation bias, right? They're going to tell you things that you already believe. And they also appeal to your identity, 
right? So if you have an identity as, you know, religious fundamentalists, the conspiracy theories will have themes or echoes of that. So that's how, that's how I view it. Okay, so you've uh, also written about what you call the North Pole strategy, which involves using an economic collapse and a crisis of legitimacy as the springboard for the Christian nationalist rights plans to seize power. Now, most people, when they think of Ron Paul, they think of him as this kindly old libertarian peace candidate who captured a lot of enthusiasm of the anti-imperialist left uh, during his 2008 presidential run. So tell us about Ron Paul and how the libertarian movement fits into all of this. Well, Ron Paul fits into it. I mean, obviously he's a libertarian, but Ron Paul is, a Christian nationalist, all right, and he's a white and he's a white supremacist, and he promoted Christian nationalist legislation. He was close to, uh, in fact, his one of his um, top advisors was Gary North, who was the key strategist of the Christian Reconstructionists. Um, the libertarians of the libertarians have always been close to white supremacy. That's the whole idea of the book, Democracy Unchained, um, and, and one of the books that escapes my mind. But the libertarian movement is always close to, to, to white supremacy. Um, and Ron Paul's been close to both movements. He's been close to secessionist movements. You know, he's, he's, he's promoted um, the idea that uh, the Supreme Court can't heal, can't hear any cases dealing with privacy. Well, that takes out um, abortion cases that takes out contraception cases that takes out gay right cases of that of, of that thing. So he, you know, a lot of a lot of people give Ron Paul a, a pass that he he doesn't deserve. I mean, just in general, like how much do you see the libertarian movement as kind of a Trojan horse to seducing the left? Because, I mean, I know in my case, I really, you know, first got into the libertarian movement um, through Robert Anton Wilson, who's a really uh, prominent counterculture writer. And that was just sort of in later years, I kind of noticed a lot of these big counterculture figures like Raw, like uh, Carrie Thornley, like Stuart Brand. These guys were all libertarians. And, um, you know, you kind of see a lot of that ethic those, you know, kind of creeping into later uh, cyber culture and that type of thing. And it's, it's something that really seems like it's very seductive to a certain type of liberal. It, it can, be, I, I suspect it can be, it, it can be on, a, um, especially on free speech grounds. The libertarian argument is, is very appealing. I, I find it appealing. I, I'm not, I'm not going to say uh, it's not. Uh, I like free speech. Um, they were very early on in um, marijuana legalization, and that was a big gateway to uh, the left in terms of legalizing drugs. But the libertarian movement has always found a way to side with white supremacy. And they do it through voucher system, you know, Milton Friedman. Um, they've always made excuses for white, the white supremacy uh, in terms of the state can't do anything. And if the state does anything, that's itself racist. So it, they, they use very seductive arguments, but, but they, they always land on the side of white supremacy. Almost invariably, they do. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of just seems like that obsession with just total personal freedom um, and trying to strip, you know, society of any kind of social responsibility on the part of the government. Um, you know, obviously, um, you could point to randism and objectivism, I suppose, as another, you know, kind right. of gateway, if you will. But um, it's just, it's so fascinating to me how that's yeah. really used against the left. And it's a very ahistorical or even almost anti-historical um, ideology. You know, it's like, it's like nothing really exists before, right? So four or 500 years of, of slavery or Jim Crow just suddenly disappeared in their, in their, in their analysis. There's nothing to overcome. All you got to do is say, um, okay, racism is over and, and, and now we uh, play by different rules. It, it, it's just mind boggling how, how, how people get taken in by it. Yeah, no, I mean, it absolutely is. And uh, like I said, it's just, you know, when you go back and look at the early counterculture, I mean, it's just amazing how often you see these people have previously been in like the Minutemen and that kind of thing. So, I mean, this this strange relationship has existed for a while. Um, well, it's a, it's seductive for the, for the very reason that if, you, you know, if you look at the history, let's say from 1947 on, right? So, you get, you get a liberation movement in the South, right? And you get court cases like Brown versus Board of Education. And the NAACP wins that. You have to integrate the school system. So what, 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 do, what do the white supremacists in the South do? They start creating one, their own um, you know, parallel school systems. And then the libertarians come in with, well, hey, how about school vouchers? How about charter schools? How about you know all these other things to get around integration? And then the federal government has to step in, and you know, Eisenhower. It's all about like, states' rights to them. Yeah, but Eisenhower, a Republican, is sending airborne troops to enforce Brown versus Board of Education, right? You know, and so it's the seductive thing about states' rights is. Eisenhower sending airborne troops to enforce the Constitution. JFK is sending FBI agents to investigate murders. And so is LBJ, you know, down, down in the South. And, and, and the libertarians object to state power. They side on the side of racists. And that's history. I mean, they, you just, they, they can't get away from it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sad though that uh, so few people are aware of that yeah all right so on the topic of movements i've recently mm -hmm. great david metcalf on to take us through the history of dominionism and morning star ministries so we know a bit about how you know insane they are um but they really seem to have stepped up their game in recent months uh could you take us through some of these developments well uh, i yeah i'm not I'm trying to I'm trying to say that I see a lot more continuity. Put it this way: in Rick Joyner and what he's what he's done, um, and I tried to, to to sort of flush it out in a, in a way that you know he's totally bought into the the North Pole strategy of of economic collapse that that that's coming. But he's always, and he's bought into the militia views about gun control. 
he's bought into ideas that um, that you have to prepare for a second American revolution. He's talked about Obamacare leading to a revolution, um, chaos on the border leading to you know border wars. I mean, he's 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 a follower. He's not an original thinker. The guy is the guy is. I mean, he, he like holds his finger up in the wind and figures out which way things are going. And then he says, I got a prophecy. You know, he, he always has dreams that come that that come to him. So he's he's one of those guys who is thoroughly soaked in this militia worldview kind of thing, this Camp of the Saints worldview, this militia worldview. And he is simply using his fake prophecies to spread this out to people who follow that, that ministry. And then he gets on radio and, and religious television and spreads it even further. Well, serious enough, this, oh, what were you going to say? No, I mean, so I'm saying is that I, I just see more continuity with him than 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 a stepping up of his game. But he might be stepping up his game. Uh, you know, I don't follow him that closely, uh, except in terms of like a you know much larger canvas. What's I mean, the seriousness of this though is, I mean, the fact that he's such a good or at least close associate now of uh, General Jerry Boykin. I mean, a former head of the Joint Special Operations Command. I mean, this is a guy who knows a lot about unconventional warfare. I mean, that's it's very distressing when you look at some of the rhetoric that Joiner has been using recently. Oh, yeah. Boykin is actually far more dangerous uh, because Boykin has four stars. I think no, he three stars. I think he's three stars. But Boykin, you know, is talking from been there, done that, got all the T-shirts kind of thing. Joyner has no theological background. He's just a clown, calls himself a prophet. And you, when you get right down to it, Boykin, you know, you can say, well, you, you know, he's in Delta and he has, he knows what the hell he's talking about. And he, he knows what's going on. And he's, a, he's a more dangerous character. Yeah. Absolutely. And he has far more, you know, one of the things in the conservative movement is that most of them really haven't served in the military. And so anybody that's served in the military, they look up to. <laughs> and if you have three stars or you have, you know, what, two or three stars like uh, Flynn, you're, you're like walking on water for them. No, it seems like a lot of the guys who have gravita gravitated to the right ex-military types do have that kind of background with special operations forces like Flynn and Boykin. Um, do you have like a kind of a take on that? Well, I, it's hard to say. Um, somebody, who, who is it? Somebody, Troy, just wrote a, a long tweet on about 35 people who support QAnon who come out of, uh, who come out of the intelligence community or the military community. And I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, I come out of the same community. I don't really understand why, but one of the things he came up with, and I, I, which I, th I do think works, is that most of these guys are alienated from their work. That is, at some point, either after their career, they were they were looked at from intelligence professionals as God. You guys have really you you guys have gone off the deep end. You know, there's something really wrong with what you're doing, and so they've gravitated to the one audience that will actually listen to them. 
Well, that's unsettling that that was the uh, particular audience that their uh, ideals would appeal well, to. Uh, well, you know, if you if you lose your audience, you know, like uh, where a lot of these guys really lost their audience was 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 in 2016 was with the the, the Russian um, hack of the DNC, right? And a number of these guys said, oh, no, it's a hoax. It was really uh, leaked. Um, you know, it was this, it was that, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it comes to find out, that, you know, the intelligence community knew what was going on. The Mueller, Mueller report comes out. The Senate reports come out. And basically it says, look, if you, read, if you read the reports, these former CIA guys, former NSA guys didn't know what they were talking about. So at that point, they're discredited in the eyes of, you know, most sane people. And so who are you going to talk to? You're going to go talk to the insane people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's facetious, but. Yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Um, but yeah, that's. A, I mean, you, you go to an audience. Yeah, yeah. And that uh, would certainly characterize the audience uh, insane in a word. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, mean I, I, I tell you the truth. I, I don't know to laugh or cry when I'm reading the QAnon stuff. I really yeah, don't. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you <laughs> All right, so let's stay on this thread of insanity for a second. <laughs> so you've suggested in your writings that there is a connection potentially between Christian reconstructionism and Christian identity. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and when it first took place and what form uh, it would take place? <laughs> well, there were two scholars who understood that before I said anything, that there was a sort of theological link between Christian Reconstructionism, which is a religious ideology that society has to be reconstructed so that everything is conforming to their perception of what the Bible says and the government, the constitution, all federal laws conform to the Bible, and it's all about Jesus, right? And the Christian identity movement, which is a racist, anti-Semitic religious movement. But there was a connection between the two in that um, what connected them was the belief that because the Jews rebelled against God, then certain Christians, or, you know, all Christians or certain Christians were really the, um, the beneficiaries of all of God's blessings, Right. So that theolo theological link was already there. Okay. And the other link that Barcoon, Michael Barcoon talked about was the striking re resemblance between the two because um, law had to be Bible centered. So those were the two theological links between these two religious movements. What I was writing about was these two religious movements that even though they have some linkages, we're actually in disagreement with each other, okay? And they had, the Christian identity people started making a, a concerted effort to bridge their differences. And they bridged their differences by showing where they agreed with the Christian Reconstructionists and where they disagreed. And when that happened, when the, when when they when the Christian identity people showed, well, we agree with a lot of what you're saying. Then there were physical contacts. 
David Barton, who the um, Christian rights uh, pseudo historian on America's a Christian nation and should be a Christian nation again. And Larry Pratt, who is the executive director of Gun Owners of America. They are the physical contact between the two movements. And then in 1992, the Christian Reconstructionists and the Christian Identity folks get together in Estes Park, Colorado, and they agree in principle to set up a nationwide Christian Patriot militia movement. And that's that's what I'm that's what I was getting at is how did they get to Estes Park? And beyond just the theological links that were there, that were very you know, they were there, but they weren't they weren't determinative. Because the Christian identity folks looked at the Christian right and said that these guys are a bunch of pansies, that they're afraid to say white power, you know, they're afraid to afraid to be white supremacists. And Pete Peters, the, the, the Christian identity preacher, got the idea of we could we can we can span the differences between us. Let's let's see what, what we have in common. And that's what ended up. Now, does this kind of, because this was the whole era, too, when um, the FBI was doing the PatCon investigation, uh, when they were looking at the Civilian Material Assistance Program and the Order of St. John and some of these other groups, would this sort of be kind of like uh, part of the network that was being uh, crafted between these two groups at the time? Well, it, it, it's after the sedition trial, okay? So yeah. you, have the, you have the order and Allenberg being murdered, and then you have the sedition trial, and the government loses that trial. That lose, they lose that case. Thanks they can't prove Glenn Miller, I believe. Yeah, exactly. They can't, you know, the government can't prove the seditious con conspiracy. So this comes afterwards. But you have to remember that in the late 1980s, okay, Reagan had, had basically, you know, crushed the order, and and even though they lost the tri the, the sedition trial. You know, basically, you know, the, the law and order Reagan administration really just basically crushed these guys. And Christian identity folks, basically in a bunch of isolated backwoods, you know, compounds, right? And you can't, you can't even find them on a map. And at the time, the Christian right was, was, was in the, in the, in the they had already emerged as a force in the Republican Party. And they were already talking about there's a coalition of revival. And they're putting out documents saying, we're going to form a nationwide Christian militia. We're going to form nationwide grand juries, for example. Okay, so they're already laying the groundwork in 1990. In 1989, Lind, who's working at the the, the Free Congress Foundation is laying out the organizational operational principles for what this militia is going to look like. And so the Christian right is taking the lead on, on this in terms of what they've announced that they're going to do. And the Christian identity folks who have been, you know, survivalists and out in the backwoods and forming their own little paramilitaries around the little compounds, they see a way to get together. And that's why, that's why I write about that, my, what I call chapter 11, is how these two movements really come together. But who's really driving the train is the Christian right. They come there with 
all the money and all the nationwide uh, infrastructure that the Christian identity folks don't have. You know, at the time, the Christian right had the Christian coalition. They were taking over significant chunks of the Republican Party. It's kind of interesting, too, because, um, you know, the Christian identity movement was even put in a somewhat sympathetic light after um, um, Ruby Ridge, uh, I think, in 1992. And this was sort of in contrast to what had happened with Gordon Call about a decade earlier. So um, it's kind of interesting to see how when those two events came out, uh, the Christian identity movement came out looking a lot better in 92 than they had in the 80s. Yeah, you know, it's, that's an interesting point you raise, because if you if you think about the Christian right, the Christian right in 1980, in one of the most significant events, uh, you know, the writers who, who deal with the Christian right uh, note, that I think it was called, um, was it the March on, it, was, it wasn't the March on Washington, but it was something like Washington for Jesus or something like that. I can't remember. But anyway, this, this thing happens in 1980, right, right before Reagan, uh, Reagan's actually, I think, in power or, or, is, or is about to come into, come into office. And what the Christian right's able to do is bring together evangelicals, fundamentalists, charismatic, Pentecostals, you know, all kinds of denominations to have this overarching, you know, let's build the kingdom here and now kind of thing, right? And the Christian identity folks with, 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 um, with, uh, with uh, Waco, you know, side with a religious movement, you know, the Branch Davidians that is really way out there in terms of Christianity. So they're also bridging religious um, differences. It's really a fascinating era when all these Christians just start coming together. Now, also, do you have a take on um, um, Fraser Glenn Miller? Because, I mean, he's always kind of struck me as what white nationalism's answer to Whitey Bulger or something to that effect. Um, no, not really, no. Okay, well, he was the guy who sank the Ford Sedition trial, if I'm not mistaken. And then, um, well, see, the FBI had used him as an informant for years, and they actually thought that he had uh, murdered several people uh, even before he went and shot up the, I think it was the Jewish synagogue and... Minnesota, maybe, or something like that in 2012, but um, it was just a disaster, uh, you know, and it's just amazing that this is the kind of guy that they would even look to as an informant. I mean, if you ever read any of his writings from the 70s or 80s, he was clearly insane. I mean, way back then. Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't follow him that close. Okay. All right, so um, something people in the mainstream have ignored over the last decade has been the rise of uh, far-right political parties like the American Independent Party, the Populist Party, the Constitution Party, and so on. And I mean, they've been on the fringes for a while now, um, but they, you know, you really don't see like a left-wing equivalent of that in the whole ecosystem, you know, akin to the, uh, the whole ecosystem of the far-right political parties. Now, you've written about these organizations as playing an important role in fourth-generation warfare strategy. Could you elaborate on that first now? Yeah. Well, one of the things, you know, there are all, all, all these parties out there, very fringy, very small um, political parties. And they all basically end up with introducing warfare between their political leaders, not trusting each other and whatever. The party that really emerges um, 
to pull all these cats and dogs together is the Constitution Party that was headed by Howard Phillips. Okay. Now, Howard Phillips was a member of the Council for National Policy. And the only reason they started the, 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 the Constitution Party is to do two things. One was to, to grab the fringe guys and bring them into one political party. And the second was just to, to have like a, as a, th a third party threat to the Republican Party, right? <clears throat> and so what the Constitution Party did was grab together the, 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 the most hardcore of the anti-abortion, um, anti-gun control and anti-tax activists, for example. And they cooperated with um, neo-Nazis, it cooperated with the Klan when it did uh, anti-immigration protests, okay? So it was also the vehicle that helped organize the, the Christian militias in the 1990s. They were the vehicle, you know, and when the militias e emerge again in 2009, it's brought about by a We the People, um, Ron Paul sponsored, Constitution Party sponsored um, in small less Continental Congress, Continental Congress, which is where the movement comes together again to launch the Patriot militias again, along with the Oath Keepers that come out of the Ron Paul, they're part of the secret Ron Paul, Gary North strategy. So these are the hardcore revolutionaries. You know, these are the really hardcore activists and it's the vehicle for taking all the fringy guys and putting them in one political party. Now, out of curiosity, um, I know they've definitely tried to target veterans heavily historically for a lot of these like militia movements. I mean, it seems like kind of incidentally, um, the two heydays of them, the first kind of in the 80s, early 90s coincided, you know, after Vietnam was over with for about five years. And it kind of seems like you saw a resurgence after we had been in Afghanistan for about seven or eight years. Uh, do you see that sort of contributing to it in some ways as well? Yeah, I mean, the, they have definitely targeted veterans because they have former military experience, former intelligence experience, um, combat experience, and they need that because they don't have any expertise in that. You can't have a militia without having people who've been there, done that, and know what they're talking about. You just can't. Um, and so they have targeted veterans for sure. Almost certainly. And a guy like Boykin helps recruit. You know, you're a veteran, you look at a three-star general, you're a veteran, you look at three-star general Michael Flynn, you know, it helps that to, to recruit. And then you create a specific vehicle, the Oath Keepers, to attract active duty and retired or former um, active duty military National Guard law enforcement. All right, so um, how about um, the methods used by Cambridge Analytica? Do you see that as being a part of fourth generation warfare? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Bannon was a proponent that he got from Breitbart and Breitbart, you know, is, wasn't, wasn't an original thinker either because he got it from uh, Paul Weyrich and William Lind of you wage a cultural war to, in order to get political power Okay. And 
that's what Bannon did. Bannon used Breitbart and Breitbart Radio to wage a cultural war. And he did it, and, and this is uh, people I don't think re really realize how um, not only sophisticated Cambridge Analytica was, but how dangerous it was. Because it, 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 it collected, you know, through Alex Kogan, it collected, you know, like 80 some odd million um, Facebook profiles, right? And then they built lookalike profiles. And these were based on personality um, profiling, yes. profiling of Ocean and the Dark Triad, right? And so Cambridge Analytica used these profiles, these psychological profiles, in order to target people to unleash their inner demons, okay? It is a you know, I mean, Chris Wiley, who was the data scientist, his book is called Mindfuck. You know, that's what it is. It is to get deep into your mind. Well, he spells it F, um, mind, F, um, um, asterisk, CK. But it's a fascinating look. He is the data scientist. He is basically the guy that creates Cambridge Analytica. He's the guy that knows how to do this with the algorithms. And Bannon just has the political vision. And it is a the most destructive company you can think of. I mean, just, as, just a couple of quotes from, from Chris Wiley's book. On page 16, he says, <coughs> he writes, Bannon needed to gain cultural power and informational dominance, dot, 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 in this new cultural war, the American voter became a target of confusion, manipulation, and deception. Truth was replaced by alternative narratives and virtual realities, which is basically, it's a fourth generation warfare company. And then he goes, America, on page 17, he goes, America is now living in the aftermath of the first scale deployment of a psychological weapon of mass destruction. And on page 132, he says, Bannon targeted people with, quote, specific psychological vulnerabilities, end quote, and unleashing their innermost demons. And so if your audience, you know, you go back to conspiracy theories, okay? What we were talking about before. And everybody on the planet has cognitive biases of, you know, confirmation bias. We all want to hear good things that we already believe in, right? So imagine you're on Facebook and a company knows that you have your Machiavellian or you're paranoid and they are feeding you a steady stream of messages for, for paranoia, heighten your anxiety, you know, whatever. You're not making rational choices now. You're just getting enraged, right? You're just getting enraged. And that's what Bannon has done. And that's fourth generation warfare. It's cultural warfare. These are the guys who on QAnon, they get so, so riled up that, um, you know, in Pizzagate, the guy gets so riled up, he goes to the Comet Pizza Parlor with an AR-15. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. And um, 
you know, to emphasize, this is why the data collection, um, you know, that they harvested from Facebook and from some of these other sources was so significant because it's what enabled them to get these highly accurate personality profiles, which is what made what they were doing so devastatingly effective. Yeah, and, and none of that data disappeared. Yeah. You know, I'm not a data expert by any stretch of the imagination. I am like a Neanderthal. But if you read people who really understand data, like Chris Vickery, this data doesn't disappear ever. Okay. These models don't disappear ever. And Chris Vickery is the one who finds like a, another data set of like 192 million Americans. And there's organizations. Uh, that collected church data, right? So, you know, you, like if you see the movie, if you ever watch the movie, um, People You Know, which is really excellent. So you go, to, you go to your local church, right? And you have a problem and they say, well, what's going on? And you go, well, I'm having marital problems or I'm having financial problems or having alcohol problems or sexual deviance problems, whatever it is, right? And they write it down and they get your phone number and they sell that data to a data company like a Cambridge Analytica. They're not selling it to Cambridge Analytica is, is gone. But you know, they're selling it to a company that has these models, has that data, and now they can target you. And it is vicious. This is what's this is what's going on in America. We're being torn apart by big data companies that are waging a war in your mind. Yeah, and I mean, to put this in perspective, um, you know, I've looked a bit into some of the counterinsurgency methods that the uh, the French developed, um, uh, you know, in the uh, 1950s, uh, Le Guerre Revolutionnaire, I think was what it was called, Revolutionary Warfare. Um, and effectively, I mean, the first step that they really outlined uh, for fighting a counterinsurgency, and they used this in the Algerian conflict, was data mining and personality profiling for the, uh, you know, the populaces that they were going to be dealing with. So, I mean, this is essentially, you know, a method that would be used effectively to wage a counterinsurgency by a military apparatus. Yeah. You know. And if you read uh, Ajit Man, um, she's a very brilliant um, woman, and she writes on narrative warfare. And one of the things you do what it starts off with, as she writes, is you got to do target analysis. You understand these people culturally and psychologically, right, in order to put out your narrative. Like if you want to de-radicalize a population, you, got, you have to know that population. But you could use it to radicalize a population. You could use it to tear apart a population. If you understand them psychologically, what makes them tick? And that's what we face. We face today, and and, and you know, obviously the, on the right, they you know they, they're trying to do rage and fear and anxiety, which is all the things John Boyd talked about in terms of moral conflict. Is that you want to raise up the the sense of menace and the sense of anxiety and the sense of mistrust, and that tears a society apart. And when you tear it apart, it'll, it'll collapse. Yes, which is a disturbing prospect given uh, the way things are going. You know, it's really interesting. You know, I was reading a biography of, of John Boyd, and I think one of the biographers said to him, or, or said about him, that Boyd thought the OODA loop was so dangerous that he didn't want to publish it. Really? Well, yeah. that definitely puts some perspective on that. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so now let's get into QAnon. Now, do you see this as a kind of blowback from this domestic fourth generation warfare, or is there something more to it? Well, okay, I'm not saying this facetiously, don't get me wrong. But, you know, QAnon is many things depending on how you look at it. So if you're a gamer, you see the gaming aspects of it. Um, if, you're, if, you're, if you understand the religious uh, aspect, you see the religious aspect. So it has a lot of different aspects that make it really potent, really powerful, okay? And it is a fourth, form of fourth generation warfare. And you can't, you just take the two core tenets of, 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 of the QAnon thing, right? That what? The, there's a, uh, what? A satanic worshiping cabal of democratic elites who eat children to gain power. That's one thing. And, you know, 23% of GOPers believe that. Or if you just say it's Trump fighting um, child sex traffickers, uh, 29% of GOPers believe that. Um, or you can, you can talk about there's a deep state undermining Donald Trump. Now, the deep state is what? People who have um, sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, who uphold the law, work in law enforcement or the intelligence community. So they're just ordinary civil servants, bureaucrats, if you want to say, but civil servants who are upholding the law, making sure the law is followed, making sure the country is defended. And so QAnon comes along and says, you know, the entire deep state is trying to undermine Donald Trump. And you know what? 70% of the Republican Party believe that. That is basically saying the FBI is illegitimate, the CIA is illegitimate, the NSA is illegitimate, uh, maybe even the Department of Justice is Ill illegitimate. You're delegitimizing the government in favor of one guy. So it is a fourth generation warfare weapon. And it's a very powerful weapon because it delivers, like, for example, you read the gamers on this thing. And they'll go, it's an alternative, what do they call it? Alternative reality game. Yes, right? alternative reality game. Alternative reality game. And you get this dopamine rush from figuring out puzzles, right? Um, it's anti-Semitic. It harbors back to, for the old folks, you know, the 60-year-olds, it harbors back to the um, satanic ritual abuse of the 1980s, Right. And, the, and a pedophilia. And it appeals to mothers. I mean, you're talking about, you know, babies being kidnapped, human trafficking of children. Obviously, it's going to touch on this, um, you know, a maternal kind of instinct with women. And QAnon attracts very conservative, religious women. Um, it also has, if you're familiar with the New Apostolic Reformation, which is like the fastest growing evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal movement in the country. And all, you know, Morning Star, Morningstar Ministries associated with the NRA. Exactly, exactly. Rick Joyner and Boykin are part of that. And they're also part of Donald Trump's, um, you know, evangelical council advising him on, on, on things, right? And running his prayer groups for all his, you know, his prayer group for his, um, his department heads. So if you're familiar with the new apostolic reformation, like Andre Gagne and, and, and Bruce Wilson, you know, or this guy Argentino, 
they're talking about there are echoes of the new apostolic reformation built into this QAnon. So if you're a if you're like an evangelical and you're tuned to this stuff, you pick up the spiritual warfare, spiritual mapping, you know, you pick up on all this stuff. And that appeals to you. And, and then you have violence that comes out of this movement. So it is a very dangerous movement. The, oh, the other aspect of it is, is crowdsourcing. Now, if you ever read Kate Starbird, she talks about on Twitter how um, misinformation or disinformation is, is crowdsourced you know, in real time, you know, so somebody puts out a tweet, somebody adds something, somebody adds something, blah, 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 blah. And you, you, you end up with a narrative of, you know, a conspiracy theory online in real time. And that's the same thing that happens with QAnon, you know, do your own research and you get together with other people and everybody's crowdsourcing the answers because there's no answer, but you know, they're crowdsourcing the answers and it just builds this community. And then you do, you do this great thing you know you say where we go one we go all that provides you with you know moral courage and moral strength that you're part of this huge movement you tell this thing that the storm is coming you tell these people that this is your identity but you're going to win i mean you can't imagine how sophisticated qanon is i mean obviously you and I know that looking at those Q drops is just absolutely insane. You know? Yes, yes, yes. But I know what you're saying. I mean, a lot of average people, I mean, they kind of look at the Q drops and they think that it's just a bunch of clowns. And that might be the case at the very lower levels. But the people who put this together knew what they were doing. <laughs> exactly. The people who put it together knew what they were doing. Now, it's not, it wasn't pre, it wasn't, um, predestined to succeed because so I've been reading if you've read some of the Bellingcat um, articles from the Q origin project they do really good work is that his the, the first within about the first 15 Q drops it was kind of iffy whether the guy was going to succeed he eventually did but it wasn't it wasn't like you know it took off like wildfire um he he made some cue drops and people said oh what a, another another larper here <laughs> yeah so it wasn't predestined but the people who put it together or i think it's got to be more than one but it, it could be one really have done some very sophisticated stuff now out of curiosity have you looked more into um the history of alternate reality games you know what listen i am uh, i'm not gonna look I'm not going to say I'm technologically illiterate because that's not true. But I, I've never been a gamer. I have never understood the attraction of it. I had friends that were gamers. I had friends that were gamers. Yeah, no, I'm not a, I'm not a gamer either. I just was kind of forced to look into the history from some of the other projects I'm working on. But we'll see. No, I really, I'm, I'm not really like a gamer expert. I'll read some stuff on it. You know, the alternate, you know, the, you know, the, like the, the A-Han and D-Han wrote, well, wrote I mean, some articles on it. Um, well, no, like, I'm not an expert on it. 
Well, here's the thing that's kind of interesting to me. Like the first uh, true alternate reality game was probably Ong's Hat, which was released in 1988. And it really used a lot of conspiracy tropes heavily in it. And uh, at one point, the guy who did it, Joseph Matheny, was even collaborating with Peter Moon, um, who's the guy principally responsible for spreading the Montauk mythos. And they incorporated a lot of the Montauk stuff heavily into Ong's Hat. I mean, the two kind of like ran concurrently for a while in the 90s. But anyway, Anyway, Matheny um, started to do his own personality profiling to the people who were um, involved in Ong's Hat. And he came to the conclusion that there were certain personality profiles that could be, you know, triggered into unstable flights of fantasy through these conspiracy theories that they were weaving, which is one of the reasons why he shut Ong's hat down around 2001 or so, because just some of the players were becoming so unhinged. But it was just, to me, it was fascinating that you could already see how people were starting to figure out back then, almost inadvertently, the conspiracy theories could really be used in a fashion to just totally drive people off the rails. Um, you know, and now you can see what happens when, I mean, somebody kind of deliberately tries to craft this sort of narrative with it. It's, it's, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. You know, I mean, to pick up on, on the point you're making is that you, like QAnon and, 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 you know, in, incorporates a whole series of, of previous conspiracy theories, Right. And people who are doing games are picking up elements of previous games that work, you know, and it, it just gets more sophisticated and more sophisticated at a time. And you see this, um, you know, the transference or the, or the use of the same principles, you know, the, how do you get a dopamine rush, right? Is it, is it the doom scroll or whether you're tweeting into a conspiracy theory or whether you're, trying to solve a, a Q drop with other people, you know, they, they're tapping into to psychological processes that most people are not aware exist. And those processes are across all kinds of different platforms. I mean, I also think, too, because it seems like specifically for this kind of stuff, I mean, they do target, you know, a lot of personalities who are loner types. I mean, I don't know the more sophisticated personality profiles, but I know in my own experience with Myers-Briggs, a lot of people in the conspiracy communities are usually INTPs or INTJs who tend to be pretty socially alienated, to put it mildly. So it kind of seems like the ability to sort of uh, create a community for these people is also a big part of the allure yeah. as well. You know, one of the parts, one of the things we, we never get to see, and we probably never know, okay, is that if you're at a, a, a gaming company or you're just sitting there and you, let's say you have money, right? You're a foreign intelligence service or you're just a corporation and you have money to invest in research. You can research who bought, who bought previous games, right? And or who, who paid online to pay, play previous games, correct? And then you can buy a database of what magazines do they subscribe to? Are they registered to vote? Where do they live? I mean, you could start putting together profiles of people who play games and then start designing the games to fit that target audience. It seems to me that's very possible to do. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a very malevolent way. Yeah, oh my 
like I said, it's just incredible when you see. Well, you, and, I, and I get the idea from Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Wheeler and, and uh, the books up there. But anyway, they did, they were looking at authoritarianism, right? And the first book they did on authoritarianism, they did it, uh, they used the standard measure of authoritarianism. Uh, uh, child rearing, or they, or they may have done the right wing um, authoritarian index. But the second time they did the book, they did it on consumer behavior. You know, whether you drove a Prius or drove something else, whether you ate in a restaurant, whether you ate Chinese food or steak and potatoes. And just on consumer behavior, they start predicting authoritarianism. So it's like big data is, is a big threat, put it that way. We don't know what the heck is coming at us. Yeah. We just don't. Yeah. And I mean, again, that's why it's so important that we need laws in place to protect. Yeah. I mean, what did you, you, you know more about, you know more about gaming than I do, but what do you think about Pokemon where you're giving away all kinds of data to Pokemon? Oh yeah. With the Pokemon Go stuff and all that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, it's just, um, well, I mean, another one that's, you know, kind of odd, too, that I think is used for this, is, well, I know for a fact it's used, is the whole um, UFO community, uh, the people who claim to have been, you know, because the thing is, is they give all this data to groups like MUFON, and MUFON has sold that data. So, I mean, it's, they use some pretty Machiavellian ways to collect this data profiling, you know? <laughs> you know, I don't know who said it, but it is basically true. If something is free, you're the product. Uh, we have gotten to the point where we are just monetizing everything. You know, everything you do online gets monetized. Every group you send something into, you get monetized. You get put, fed into a database someplace. Uh, it's, we live, we live in a time that, um, it, it certainly wasn't like that when I grew up, but, I, but I'm not saying that, you know, let's go back. I'm just saying that yeah. things have gotten much more sophisticated and you really don't know what's coming at you. I was reading, you know, I was reading, I started because I wanted to write an article on propaganda. So I started reading like the earliest stuff, right? And, and if you think about propaganda, you know, what, let's say movies or radio, all you're doing, you can, all you can do is broadcast out to this mass audience, right? And, and hope that, 10 people out of a hundred or, or, you know, 10 people out of a thousand, you know, are listening and, and take note of it. Right. But you really have no control over it. And, and then you get the television. It's basically still the same thing. You're just broadcasting to this big mass of people and you're hopefully that you can, you can narrow your message down and target it down a little bit. And now we've gotten to the point, the internet and the social media companies Beams. get down to one. Mm. What can I get into your mind? And you know, I was reading. You probably read the article about the um, the Trump campaign uh, published. I think it was in Wired. I'm not sure, but uh, it was like published in like October 2016. You know, they had a 70 million dollar budget every month, right, for targeting, and they had the best psychological warfare companies working for them and they were doing thousands and thousands of permutations on one word for one ad so they would change a word 
stick it on your Facebook feed, change a word, stick it on somebody else's Facebook feed. And then you get these journalists, this, this is really funny. So you get these journalists that call up some psychology professor someplace and go, well, can you really do this? Could Cambridge Analytica really do this? And they go, oh no, it can't be done. It can't be done. So I would go, I would go, so I would get the guy's name, right? And Google it and say, okay, so what has he published in the last five years? And he's, they've all wrote, wrote, wrote papers uh, based on college students in some Midwestern, you know, college town someplace. And uh, they had like maybe a uh, uh, hundred people in the trial and um, they did, you know, five or six experiments, maybe. Seriously, you're talking about a, a company that's doing $70 million a month and you're going to tell them it doesn't work? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no, that is just absurd. <laughs> Um, all right. So where do you see things going from here? I mean, certainly the Trump movement has ample fodder for the uh, good old stab in the back myth that has driven so many right wing movements over the years. It seems like there is a real danger here, even with Trump out of office. Is that your sense or are you more optimistic going forward? I'm not optimistic. I'm not optimistic. I'm a pessimist. Um, and Trump's a danger. Trumpism is a danger. But I'll just, you know, go back to how does the right wing think they're going to come to power? Okay. And they think there's going to be some kind of economic collapse, right? And there could be hyperinflation. But if you read economists, you know, they'll tell you that corporates Corporations have too much debt overhang. Um, mortgages were, had too much debt overhang. You know, there's all sorts of scenarios out there um, of an economic collapse. That is, it's not unheard of. You don't have to be a far right conspiracy theorist to think that the economic system is itself unstable enough that it could collapse. Because there are plenty of good economists that will tell you it is possible. Look at all the efforts they're going to undertake to delegitimize the Biden administration, the Democratic Party, um, the Congress. And they also see themselves as contesting control of territory. And if you read their novels, which is where their strategy comes in, like how they could do it, that's their teaching vehicle, these novels, they think up of small operations, small tactical, physical operations that lead to bigger strategic moral victories. But here's the point. All those tactical operations they have are tied to a political party. In this case, when you see a, a right, really right-wing politician linking up or you know, having a mental link with um, these insurrectionists or the militia or Oath Keepers or Proud Boys and something's going on, you can kind of guess that maybe, just maybe, this is an operation that they're pulling off, okay? A small-scale operation linked to something else. And they're going to try to change it into a, a strategic victory. And so I would say that we have to be really careful about what we do now. And I don't mean to be timid. That's not what I'm saying. 
just be careful about what we're doing. For example, federal law enforcement is obviously going to be looking at these guys more closely. There's no doubt about it. But every time we do a law enforcement operation to arrest somebody, law enforcement, whether it's on a local level or especially if it's the FBI, has to have three elements um, incorporated into their operational plan beyond arresting the guy, okay? They have to have a narrative already pre-planned that this was a moral victory, okay? That this was the right thing to do and to delegitimize the insurrections. They have to have a plan in place that is going to deal with disinformation because we're now in, a, in, a, in an environment since maybe the 80s or 90s, but certainly since then, of insurgents having their own media capabilities. Okay, we saw that at the Bundy Ranch, saw that at the Malheur, um, um, you know, in Oregon. So you have to be able to, to, to combat disinformation in real time right then. And you have to have a narrative of what happens if it fails. You know, you go to arrest it and things go to heck. Because, you know, Mac Vanderbilt, when he was alive, he talked about no free Wacos. And the idea was that you do an operation like a Branch Davidian again, and you could end up with assassinations across the country, looking for judges, looking for U.S. attorneys, looking for politicians who sign, you know, whatever. I mean, there's a whole target list that they have. So we have to be very careful about how we do these operations, but we have to do them. We just have to recognize that we're in a, we're in a very fragile period. The other aspect of it is, and this is for the Biden administration, and I, I don't tell basically political operators how to operate, but the only thing I'll say is, the Biden administration and the, and the Democrats in Congress, they got to deliver the goods, the economic goods, okay? They have to deliver the economic goods. And they also have to deliver them in a way in which they make the moral case of what they're doing. Because this is a moral conflict now between an insurgency and Trump and all the same people in the country. And you have to make the moral case of what you're doing. You have to deliver the economic goods, make a moral case for it, couch policies and moral terms, you know, all the Democrats in Congress should read George Lakoff, you know, of how to use moral language to sell left-wing policies and read George Lakoff to understand what a truth sandwich is so you can combat disinformation. So I'm kind of pessimistic because I see that there's a capability there. There's lots of room for make to making mistakes, but there's also a possibility that we can win. But on the other hand, 2022 is looming. And the Republicans are doing everything they can to make sure that black and brown people can't vote in 2022. So, you know, that's, that's my take. Uh, it's kind of wishy-washy on one hand, on the other hand, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, a soothsayer. I can only look at, you know, the, the, the social forces, the correlation of forces and say, it's dicey right now. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like the biggest hurdle is obviously going to be the economic. I mean, you know, as unpopular as Trump may be right now, um, you know, I mean, if we have a couple of years of a down economy, um, that could definitely change things dramatically. Or even just, you know, what we're seeing now with these uh, these snowstorms. I mean, look at what's happening in Texas, uh, just, you know, massive power loss and that type of thing. Um, God forbid, I mean, if there's like a major, you know, hack or something like that on the country, I mean... <laughs> Take take the take, take the Texas case, okay? Because that's in the news right now. Mm -hmm. So you know they've lost power; they don't know when power is coming up. So what did the Biden administration do? The Biden administration has sent down generators and diesel fuel to Texas, right? Now I don't know if the Biden administration is thinking this or doing this, but they ought to have somebody. Pete Buttigieg is the Department of Transportation; he's as good as anybody. He ought to be talking to every television station in Texas, okay? And he's, he's a great talker. He should be on every television station in Texas talking about the diesel fuels coming, the generators are coming, the Biden administration, we hear you, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is about, you know, Texas, uh, you know, uh, this is not about red and blue Amer America. This is just about Americans and, you know, helps on the way. And the Biden administration ought not to be bashful they ought to be on every television station, every radio station in Texas talking about what they're doing. That's just me. No, absolutely. No. It is certainly going to see, be interesting to see how things play out, um, especially over the uh, the coming months. Um, it already looks like it's going to be an eventful year, to be sure. I got to ask you, because I'm going to look up after this thing. Was that alternate reality game called On Tap? Yes, Ong's had O-N-G. Uh, hat. Oh, wait a minute. O-N-G. Yeah. A pop, you know, and then S, obviously, hat. Oh, Ong's hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Think, I, I think I may have heard of that. I'm not sure if, if the Han brothers wrote about that or not, but Ong's hat. Yes, it's a it's a very interesting topic, and you know, like I said, it's it's just fascinating to see how the alternate reality games have been so closely entwined with conspiracy theory for a while now. And um, well, Matheny actually did another one around 2009-2010 that was centered around the Process Church of the Final Judgment. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the conspiracy theories about them, but it, they've been linked to this kind of serial killer cult with Charles Manson and the Son of Sam and the Smiley Face Killers, and um, he was kind of running an AR. RG that was furthering that narrative too so that's that's another thing when you look at some of these big conspiracy theories also like the montauk stuff it's like they've been used for these alternate reality games so you don't even know how much of the stuff you know incorporated into those mythos is just pure fantasy that was created for these games that you know have been run since the 90s so that's another element to it it's just <laughs> it's no really surprise i guess that in some ways consensus reality is starting to break down now <laughs> oh yeah i mean we live in a different time i mean I, I, you know I'm, I'm 69 so obviously when i grew up in the 1960s you know became an adult in the 1970s it's a completely different world i mean it was a, it was an analog world now you're in a digital world with multiple networks that you can't you don't know what's coming at you anymore you just don't yeah. the whole idea of you know, I, in a way, I don't like blaming people, you know, like for, for what their beliefs are, because they don't know what, the, what, what they're dealing with. They don't know who's coming at them. And there's no way, you know, you know like you're familiar with the OODA loop, right? What is it again? The OODA loop, the John Boyd's OODA loop. 
I believe so. All right. So, you know, in the thing, you get this, this model of observation, orientation, decision, and action, right? And you can slow it down, obviously. But if you think about when you're on Facebook, the gap between observation and orientation in your head might be down to nanoseconds. If George Lakoff is right that 95% of thinking is, is unconscious or subconscious, you have, you, have, you have corporations coming at you. You don't, you don't even have the ability to put up a defense against because they're tapping right into you. Yeah. I mean, it's just so unsettling, especially with how pervasive social media is and just how willingly people turn their data over, to, you know, now to these corporations. Yeah. And then the problem you're talking about is you go to play a game to go escape into some fantasy and they're hitting you all over again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, again, especially since, well, I mean, the military actually did start researching um, ARGs officially, uh, you know, for propaganda and psychological warfare in 2013. So, I mean, all this stuff has already been weaponized and commercialized. And yeah, I mean, <sighs> we, we are entering a period in which we no longer understand what, what the long-term effects are going to be. Yeah. We really don't. Yeah. I mean, it is truly disturbing. <laughs> it is. I mean, you, you know, for example, today's news, I don't know when you're going to put this on, but today's news, today is like what? I don't know. 17th of February. 17th. I, you know, I'm retired. Every day's the same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nothing ever changes. Uh, but, you know, today, apparently, Facebook cut off Australia from all kinds of news. Right? And that's the kind of power we've given to, to social media companies. They just Mark Zuckerberg just decides, well, you know what? You don't want to pay. I'm not going to give you any news on Facebook. That's the world we live in. We live in, we live in a world where you're at the whim of one guy who just decides you're not going to get news. Or he decides, you know what? I think the difference between um, the Holocaust and Holocaust denial is simply a matter of a difference of opinion. And so I'm just going to let Holocaust denial run rampant on Facebook. That's where we're at. Yeah. It is truly an incredible time. Yeah. Well, um, did you have any uh, closing thoughts, any links or anything you want to share with us? I, you know, I would, I would just say, understand the basic model. Okay. Culture war is leading to political war or political power. Okay, that's the basic model. And the basic idea of fourth generation warfare in that cultural war is to delegitimize authority, okay, federal government. And it is a moral conflict. And you have to understand that the aim of moral conflict is to, in your own mind and the minds of others, is to, is to raise the sense of menace, the sense of anxiety, the sense of mistrust, alienation, right? So that the moral bonds that hold us together are coming apart. And just understand what that's what's coming at you. Even if it's coming at you instantaneously, just sort of step back and understand what is coming at you. It's a strategy and you can deal with that strategy. And the way you deal with that strategy is whatever gives you moral strength. 
It doesn't matter whether it's reading the Bible, the Torah, the Quran, Mad Magazine. It doesn't matter. Whatever gives you moral strength and moral courage, hold on to that. And don't let go of the fact that you're a sane human being as the world is going crazy. Oh, I think that's a good note to end things on. Well, sir, thank you so much for dropping by. I'll have to have you back on again here one of these days. All right. My pleasure. On that note, folks, I just uh, have to wrap up now. So good night and good luck to you.